Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 289 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Zach Bitter. Zach is an ultramarathon runner, world record holder, coach, and podcaster. Zach's achievements in running are quite simply incredible. He claimed the record of the fastest 100 miles and achieved this in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. And for us mere mortals to put into context, this is four sub-three-hour marathons back-to-back. And in that same pursuit, he continued to run and broke the record of distance in 12 hours by achieving a total of 104.8 miles. So today, we are truly learning from one of the best when it comes to running. In this episode, you can expect to learn how Zach prepares himself physically and mentally for these type of events, what it takes to go from doing distances of 5, 10Ks, or even marathons to 100-mile races, and why Zach follows and typically will recommend a lower-carb diet for the runners he works with. So without further ado, Zach Bitter. Zach Bitter, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. And for those who may have not heard about you or your story before, could you give us a little context about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah. So these days, I think most people would consider me an endurance athlete, uh, specifically ultra marathon stuff. So like my target distances tend to be between about 50 kilometers and hundred miles, uh, or 31.25 miles for those of you who are looking for the mileage stuff versus the kilometers. And then, uh, you know, just past 160 kilometers for the hundred mile distance. I also do coaching with that sort of stuff. Uh, I started out as a school teacher and coached track and cross country, things like that, participated in those sports uh, in my youth. And now I do a lot of one-on-one coaching with other folks trying to target different goals around endurance stuff and then uh, hosting podcasts. So uh, I'm a host of a podcast called the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And those are the kind of the three main things I stay busy with uh, these days. Yeah, it definitely seems like you keep your plate full, that's for sure. And on that note as well, I want to go back to those uh, school teaching days. What led you in that direction? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, you know, my dad was a elementary school uh, principal for a large portion of his career and then eventually became a college professor. So I was definitely like in the education world uh, from that side of things, just seeing like, you know, him go about his day and things like that. So I was very exposed to some of that stuff. And then when I got to be college age, I, I wasn't too certain what I wanted to do in high school. And I kind of went back and forth between some things, even well into my sophomore year of college. 
I think I decided I wanted to go into education after my freshman year in college. It was just kind of just thought I would enjoy that, that kind of framework or that sort of a, uh, that sort of a career path. And then it was more about picking like what subject areas do I want to focus on? And, uh, I targeted social studies. So I got like all the certifications under those categories. And then also, you know, once I kind of got into the world of teaching, realized that I really enjoyed working in a lot of the special education areas with, you know, students with cognitive disabilities, emotional behavioral disabilities, learning disabilities, and then the gifted and talented students. So the kids on the polar ends of the spectrum, so to speak. And, uh, so I went and got got my license in that as well, and then focused a good chunk of my teaching career, which was only about five years, but uh, it was a very rewarding five years. And I did about half in the kind of special ed world and then half kind of in regular ed or a combination of regular ed, special ed. And what brought those five years to an end? Uh, really just, uh, you know, the opportunity to kind of pursue my goals as an endurance athlete, which in college and even for the few years after college, I never thought was even a viable path. So, you know, when I was picking what I wanted to do in college, at no point was I thinking, well, professional athletes on the table. That was something that was fun, enjoyable, a way if I could challenge myself physically and fill kind of some of that uh, hobby side of the, the day, I guess you'd say. Uh, but never really thought that was something I would really dive into professionally. And even and back then too, I mean, it just shows how much the world has changed even in the last decade. There, there wasn't even a real avenue for people who weren't professionals to really carve a great career in the world of running. So like, you know, now you can, you don't have to run super fast races, but if you can like be very engaging online and put out good content, you can have a career in running uh, as some sort of influencer or you know, media host and things like that. We have just have a lot more opportunities. So around 2015, I had just kind of a unique situation where the last couple of years prior, I'd started to pile some race results that were getting noticed, which brought in some sponsor support. And then I also had uh, friends and people who had met at races start reaching out for coaching services. And I started building out the coaching side of things, mostly during kind of summer break when I wasn't as uh, required to be active in the teaching side of things. Eventually, that grew to a point where between traveling for races, putting in, you know, sometimes upwards of 20 hour training weeks and then coaching one on one folks, uh, it was it was getting to be like, I got to kind of pick a path here and uh yeah. And the way I kind of looked at it at the time was, you know, the athlete side of that career was very small from a window standpoint comparatively to teaching. So my thought was, if I try this and I want to come back to teaching, I can do that. But if I decide to not do this and just focus most of my energies into you know teaching and things like that. I can't probably go back when I'm older and become a professional athlete. So that made it a little bit easier to make that decision. And the school I was teaching at too was very supportive of it. And even said, if I failed at the running side of things, I could come back. So it wasn't quite as big of a risk as maybe some people maybe think it was, but yeah, it was sort of an opportunity cost type of thing where one is more available older in life or later in life and the others essentially not. So that was kind of the, the main driver there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think there's some benefits to the fact that you didn't have that avenue of thinking professional athlete was even feasible when you were younger. I see a lot of children and kids growing up now and they kind of want the lifestyle of an athlete or even a sports person rather than the sport itself, just due to what they see is available from that. Of course, you probably would have seen that in football, soccer and all those things, which were on a major level. But for your sport particularly, they might have not seen like that avenue. So do you think there was some benefit not seeing that route as clear as you did up until the point in which you were like, well, actually weighing it up here, there's actually a good chance for that. 
Yeah, it's interesting because when I first got into running or recognized that running was like a sport outside of something you just did within other sports, I had no clue ultra running was even a thing, much less a career path. So uh, I definitely eased into running, even at the Olympic distance stuff that you're seeing more like high school kids, college kids and professional endurance athletes do from, you know, usually like the 5k up to the marathon is a pretty like nice range that most people are going to focus on. Yeah, th- those, those type of things I even kind of developed within those a lot slower than my peers in the sense that I didn't really take it overly seriously until probably my senior year in high school is when I started a giving it any amount of serious, serious attention. And then even then I was very much would be considered like a low volume person, not training like as high a volume as some of my, uh, my peers were. And then when I got to college, it was like a little eye opening where it's like, Oh, you know, these, these guys are running twice as many miles as I am and they're in their high school career. So I need to like get with the program or figure out what I'm doing here. And yeah, I think it was, it benefited me greatly in the sense that it allowed me to explore the sport from a curiosity standpoint and really figure out what it was I liked about it versus feeling compelled to have to do certain things because it was, you know, my identity or something that people were going to gonna judge me positively or negatively by. It gave me the opportunity to play a ton of other sports. I mean, I played all the team sports for the most part in middle school and high school, and then even a little bit in college at the rec level and things like that. So I think having those experiences were useful and just learning where my strengths and weaknesses really were. And, you know, as I was growing, also developing in a way that is maybe not counterproductive to like, uh, to, to my health and things like that. I think when you get a little too specific early on in age, you sort of pigeonhole yourself into like a very specific type of, uh, type of physique, you know, and sometimes that can come with its downsides where now you're like useless at anything else. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel like that was probably a good, even if it's just from an injury prevention standpoint, having a little more rel- well-rounded development physically was probably in my best interest, uh, given the career I ended up going through with ultra marathon versus, you know, other distance sports, which might be a little bit different with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Imagine all the weight you would have had to lose if you went into American football and you built yourself <laughs> for that. <laughs> you see stuff like that. There's a guy actually right now who has been breaking like almost all the timed event and like really flat runnable uh, world records. And he was a, a kayaker in, in his collegiate days and then uh, kind of got off track, gained a bunch of weight. I think he was like 200 or no, I'm sorry. He was like a hundred kilograms at one point and then decided he wanted to try to get back into shape and started running. And then, you know, over the course of like eight years or so found himself in a position to break a bunch of world records. <laughs> it is funny how, how sometimes, how, how the path to, to ultra marathon can be quite different than what you see with other sports. Yeah, it's insane. And on that note as well, of course, you've gone into ultra marathon. You've obviously pursued a lot of that, but there's a very big difference between doing the competitions and then setting these world records, like the hundred miles, for example, what's made you choose the specific events that you've tackled both from a competition standpoint and more from a, a record breaking standpoint? Yeah, I think it's evolved somewhat over the course of my career. Uh, you know, at first when I was getting into ultra marathon running, it was very much trail type events that were, you know, what was available for the most part, that side of the sport grew really fast, a lot quicker when we had this last most recent wave of ultra running. And, you know, so that was my kind of point of entry. Then after doing it for a couple of years, I started to realize that there are actually like a lot more runnable courses and even like 
road and track events where you, uh, you know, you can kind of eliminate a lot of the environmental hurdles and just focus on getting from point A to point B as fast as you can and minimizing all the different variables that could potentially slow you down. And I thought that was kind of intriguing. I I would say my first draw to it though, was just because the places I was training in, I was living in Wisconsin at the time. I just had a lot of roads, a lot of flat running terrain, uh, a lot of concrete surfaces and things like that. So one of the biggest lessons I learned kind of early on in my career was just how important kind of the specificity of training is. And that can go from just like the order of operations of the type of workouts you're doing and the way you structure your training program, but it can also include where you're doing those workouts. So like if I want to do a race that is on a 400 meter track, it is going to be very useful mechanically and developmentally to actually be on a surface like that for a good bit of time in that kind of those final phases of my training to really get my body ready for that and able to tolerate the stressors it's going to take on you know, running all day. Just like if I wanted to do a, a technical mountain trail, you know, I'm going to want to be out on that train if I can, so I can practice that skill set of running downhill over technical terrain or the mechanical differences of running uphill and downhill versus flat, the very terrain undulation of the trail and things like that are going to impact your skeletal muscle system differently. So recognizing that the training environment I had available to me matched these more runnable courses was kind of step one. And then step two was like, what distance do I want to focus on? And one of my breakout races was a 2013 and it was a hundred mile race. And, you know, technically also a 12 hour where you see how far you can get in 12 hours. And that was on a 400 meter track. And that race stuck out in the sense that I felt like I was really able to exhaust my my training a little more thoroughly than if I tried to train where I was at and then get on a trail where I always felt like it was a lot more difficult to really feel like I was able to execute the race as well as I could because I was missing that one component of course specificity. So that drew me to that. And then after doing a few of them, I just started to really enjoy it. It sounds crazy because I mean, people think like, well, if I had the option of running hundred miles over this beautiful trail or around this 400 meter track, most people are going to pick the beautiful trail. But there was just something about like the, the removal of all the obstacles and just pure running one foot in front of the other like really being able to pay attention to everything your body is telling you because every step is basically identical was a little intriguing to me. And that coupled with those environments being very controllable allows me to kind of measure progress a lot more exact where I'm not dealing with as much change where like you might have to reroute a trail due to uh, course closure things or environmental issues and things like that. Or it might just be a lot of these trail races, sometimes you can be like big swings of weather where it might be 30 degrees cooler one year than the next, or a lot of rain or snow over the winter may have created it. Uh, you know, one course to be two hours slower for the same effort. So it gets a little harder to compare that stuff. And I got really interested in just seeing that, like, what do I need to do in training to induce a performance um, improvement from what I did prior? And it's just a lot easier to measure that on a controlled environment. I also feel like you have to be a serious athlete in that sport to want to do that, right? For some degree, you can take many advantages from the terrain being completely different. You can get used to, you know, working out in the cold, working out in the heat, working out in all these crazy weather conditions and take advantage of that. But it takes an athlete who's very confident in their ability and their proficiency in what they're doing to nail the technical aspects so well that they're completely relying on their running and nothing more. So it's fascinating that that was the route you choose versus the route of potentially allowing the variables in the environment to maybe hinder you at times, but also to give you some advantages, which I think a lot of people will play to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it gets really interesting too, when you look at just how the sport has, has kind of like progressed and, and just changed over the years to where, 
we do see more mountain athletes, that's what we'd call them coming down to like runnable courses and things like that. And some of them do quite well, but you know, at other times, the majority of them, you can tell like, oh, competitively, comparatively with where like kind of the top runners are in the sport on both sides of those different types of environment, they're clearly much better at the one they've been doing. So uh, like it's, it's easier to wrap your head around. I think like if you're running on flat terrain, that going up on a technical mountain is going to create some issues. But I think a lot of times people think, well, if you can run really well on a technical mountain, that's a more challenging environment. So it should be easier to come down on a flat. And it's just like you hit your body a a lot differently. I shouldn't say a lot differently, but differently mechanically. The way I kind of describe it is when you have that uniform kind of uh, terrain, you're just really, really brutalizing a fewer number or smaller areas of your body. Whereas you're out on these trails, you're kind of like spreading that out a little bit more. So you're out on those trails, you need to have that more well-rounded kind of development to be able to tolerate everything that's going to happen. You get down on a track, you can neglect some things if you want to. I don't necessarily think that's necessarily good long-term, but you definitely need to be getting on those surfaces and getting that specific gait and the mechanical needs, then the, mel- the, the, the muscular stressors that are going to happen on that surface dialed in, or, you know, you're going to feel like I did out on the mountains when I first kind of started getting into the sport. Do you ever miss going up on the mountains and miss that type of terrain? Yeah. When I do, I usually just sign up for one of those races though. It's, <laughs> I did this. <laughs> the best of both worlds. Yeah. And that's how I kind of look at it. It's like, I, I pick the races. I, I kind of have some races that I really like to focus like the majority of my energy or my year on. And then I, I realized though, that that gets stale after a while. And I think one of the reasons why I've been able to kind of stay in the sport for as long as I have, and I'm still excited to do it is because when I do get to a point where let's say I do a flat hundred miler and I recognize after that, like, I'm just not super motivated to go through that exact same training program. Again, I don't have that edge. I need to really know that I'm going to find my, my max potential. So I'll take four to six months away from that, get back out on the trails, do a trail race or something like that, recover from that one and then go back to it. And then whenever I go back to it, I always have that kind of like refreshed sense of like, desire to really put in the work at a quality level and where I know I need to in order to kind of get my head and my body in the right place to perform. And it, that that's, I think, kind of the recipe for, for long-term success is kind of keeping that open mind and letting yourself humble, get humbled from time to time by going somewhere, doing something a little do- different that's going to take a little more time and uh, to, to get dialed in. And you may not perfect it the way you do your primary target because it's just not something you're going to have years and years of development with. For sure. And you mentioned about longevity in the sport there, but how do you maintain the longevity when it comes to the competitive nature as well? Because it's not like you're just doing these things to show up and to see if you can complete it. Because at the end of the day, you know this based on your training, but you are still trying to compete and trying to beat your best. So how do you maintain the competitive edge, even when you've broken world records, for example, and you've finished first in many of the races that you've done in the past? Yeah, I think really where, where I kind of figured out something about myself that's allowed me to kind of stay energized with it was, you know, when I first did that race in 2013 and broke an American record and a world record uh, for that event, it was like, sort of like intuitive was like, oh, well, I just broke the American record for a hundred miles. I'm not too far away from the world record. That's a logical target. You know, that's a great thing to kind of like set your sights on. And that was really the draw to kind of keep doing those events was that, all right, cool. I'm like within striking distance of this, uh, this record that I would have never imagined I'd have a, have a shot at, or even knew it was there for, for a large portion of my life. And then you sort of over going through the process, I learned that it was less about like this arbitrary record, which 
even if I get is going to get broken eventually, you kind of need a different motivator because if you're sitting there just trying to cling to world records or constantly chase world records, I just think it's going to end badly in terms of just the way you kind of view the sport and like how you view the people who are breaking your records eventually and things like that. So I sort of switched my mindset a little bit towards, I want to find out how fast I can run a hundred miles and whether someone else is doing it an hour faster than me or an hour slower than me is sort of besides the point. The point is, when I finish and run my last controlled hundred miler, did I, or did I not meet my full potential? And that was really the big question I wanted to answer the big problem I've wanted to solve. So when I've run my fastest hundred miler to date, which was 11 hours, 19 minutes, I finished that race knowing I had a really good race. And at the time probably executed about as good as I could have, but I also felt that, uh, I could go faster. So if I continue feeling that way, I'm going to keep trying (laughs) to go faster. And then whatever that number ends up being at the end of my career, I'll I'll be satisfied with, but I'll know that I really kind of use the right motivator, I think, to kind of keep myself coming back for those things. When's your next big event like that? Will you be doing the the 100 miler anytime soon in terms of the, as fast as you can? Yeah, I've had a, you know, I've been fortunate in my running career. I haven't really had to deal with injury issues in any large capacity for the most part. But the last year I've had uh, had an ankle issue that I originally hurt last August and then thought I was over it, actually trained for a couple races, but re-injured it. So I'm sort of uh, came back this last time after re-aggravating it a little more conservatively and am now getting to a point in my training where I'm probably confident enough and have the fitness where I can start looking at some races. So kind of the aggressive route would be a hundred miler, maybe in December, a little bit more of a conservative route would be about like January, February. So I'm probably going to, I might pick a hundred mile race that, that I kind of want to do that. I'm not as, uh, concerned with finding my, my absolute peak potential at and do that in December and then take that information, carry it forward to the next buildup and then do something maybe a little later in February at the hundred mile distance and then try to really execute that one well. But in terms of like doing one where it's like totally controlled, uh, those options are a little more limited just because they kind of have to be relatively predictable weather. They've got to be a, a track ultra marathon for the most part, if you want to have your fastest potential time. Um, so there's a couple of really good ones. Like there's one in, um, at the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called the Pettit center. They have an indoor track. It's like 400 and I want to say like 438 meters or something like that, or 43 meters, 443, I think built around a hockey rink. So they keep it at a nice cool 60 degrees. Fahrenheit. And yeah, that's probably about as fast of an environment as I've been on. And that one is another one I'd maybe target, which is in June. So that that would probably be the, the next one where I'd really go for like a hundred mile PR, I guess. That's insane. A hundred mile PR. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I guess. Yeah. I'm sure it's all relative, right? It's like when someone who's not super experienced in running, they think of, you know, the half marathon as looking for towards their, towards their PR and someone who's brand new to running is going to feel that from a, yeah, from a relative perspective as, as far as they can go. And then when it comes to what you've done before, you, you know, you're completely able to do that. When it comes to the question, I think it becomes more of an existential question as well. Like you said earlier, I want to know that I've basically given all and I've been able to reach my potential. How do you know that you've answered that question on a day-to-day basis? What boxes need to be ticked in order for you to say, yes, I am moving towards my best and I am fulfilling my potential? What things does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's it's definitely a learning process. I think like for me, it was first figuring out kind of the right training strategy, like where is it going to be most beneficial to do certain workouts, to put myself in the best position to 
physiologically be ready to go. And really that just kind of comes down to doing some of the more standard workouts that you're going to see in any endurance buildup, but just picking the right order of operations. And the way I like to do it when you get into these like really extreme distances or, or any extreme from one end of the spectrum to the other is you sort of do like the least specific stuff that is still important earlier in the training. And then you kind of move to more specific, uh, as you get closer to the race. So for something like a hundred miles where I'm going to be doing like the vast majority, if not all of it at, or just below my aerobic threshold, it's a relatively easy pace minus the fact that I'm trying to do it all day long, (laughs) but from an intensity standpoint, it's low. Uh, so that kind of puts me in a position where I'm doing things like short intervals really early in my training plan, longer intervals, or what we'd call, call tempo runs or lactate threshold for folks who are generally interested. It's like an intense, you could sustain for about like 45, 60 minutes in like an all out setting. And then ultimately building out at the end of the plan, just like the pace I want to try to hit on the race itself and do that in what you would you see as kind of like back-to-back long run style. So I might be doing like back-to-back three, four hour training sessions on the weekend. And those are what I'm really going to use to really kind of like whittle down as to like what my kind of goal race pace is. I'm going to use the numbers that are produced from six to eight weeks worth of like back-to-back long runs to kind of narrow down what I think the pace I could sustain for uh, for a hundred miles and operate kind of like, you know, fairly tight window around that. And that's how I've done it so far. So from the physical side, that's the way, then it's like a nutritional question too, because you have this, uh, you know, you're running a hundred miles, you're crossing over when most people, even if they're not exercising at all, are going to have eaten probably three meals in that time frame, And, you know, you're out there trying to like push your body to the limit. So like fueling is a huge part of that equation and figuring out like, well, what's going to work and what, well, first of all, what do I need? in order to like put myself in a position to run as fast as I can. And then how do I structure my training nutrition and my daily diet to match that need? The way I like to look at it is you're, anyone running hundred miles is going to have unexhaustible fat source to kind of pull from, you know, even the leanest endurance athletes are going to have much more body fat energy than they will muscle glycogen. So that is not a fuel tank you necessarily need to be worried about on race day, the fat side of it, but it is something you want to be able to be able to burn at a high level, because if you can pull from that, it spares, uh, what you are able to, it spares the energy that's coming from that smaller fuel tank, your muscle glycogen. So then it just becomes like this, this equation of like how much exogenous carbohydrate do I need to consume during the race in order to defend the muscle glycogen side of it. So for me, you know, I follow a little bit of a lower carbohydrate diet in my normal nutrition. And what that does is it has my ratios of fat to carbohydrates at my goal race intensity be skewed a little more towards fat than what I would have if I were following, say, a moderate or high carbohydrate diet, which just allows me to fuel with a little bit lower amounts of carbohydrate on race day itself, which for me just prevents the potential of digestive issues. You know, which is, you know, when you're talking about trying to like run on a very controlled environment, I mean, you're looking at everything, like how many times do I need to stop to use the bathroom? How many times do I, am I going to slow down because I have like a low in energy and things like that? You're trying to work all these numbers out. And I think when you can eliminate additional logistical needs without sacrificing performance, that's something I'm going to try to do. And that's kind of the way I look at that. So for me, based on kind of the the tests I've done to kind of determine where my ratios of fast carbohydrates are going to fall uh, at the intensity I'm going to race at has me somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 to 20% of my energy expenditure coming from my muscle glycogen or exogenous carbohydrate usage. So if you look at my hundred mile pace, which is you know, roughly 647 and a half minute per mile pace. 
the intensity that that's at with that 10 to 20% carbohydrate metabolism or glycogen metabolism. If you look at that from an energy expenditure over the course of an hour, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to a thousand calories per hour. So that just means like I'm kind of in the neighbor, if I can hit like 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour, I'm probably safe. So that becomes the kind of the target to try to take in during the race day, which means on my long runs, I should be practicing that, figuring out what foods, what products are going to be able to, you know, sit in my stomach well without creating an issue while trying to solve a problem at the same time. And, you know, that's all, that's all part of the, part of the process as well. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. There's so much of the physiological side of things that needs to be dialed in and you have to be extremely meticulous when it gets to those levels, because I'm sure the details matter massively. So with that being said, when you turn up to a race day, you know, everything's dialed in. The only thing left to manage from that perspective is the lifestyle variables, you know, your sleep, your stress, and then how your mind is on that day. How do you go about like, which was almost managing those. And also when it comes to that same question, when you get to the end of the day, how do you tick those boxes? How do you say that, you know, I've had a sufficient amount of sleep. I've made sure my stress is in the perfect place and I'm managing my mind to the best of my ability as well. Yeah, it's a great question. I think like what I try to do is there's there's a physical rest component of it, which, you know, is obviously important. And then there's like, yeah, getting your mind ready and the rest and stuff that you need uh, to refresh everything. So I'll do like a two week taper leading into a goal race where I'm reducing my volume by roughly like 30% that first week after my final buildup. And then about 50% the week leading into the event. And then I'm also going to reduce intensity, which is pretty scarce at that point in my training anyway, since I'm focusing most of my energies on race day intensities at that point anyhow. So that's going to give me the opportunity to really kind of clear some space, both from a time standpoint and an energy expenditure standpoint to kind of let everything freshen up, get a little couple extra hours of sleep and really get ready for it. I always find like you can't count on getting great sleep the night before an event in most cases. And you know some of these start so early in the morning, even if even if you did fall asleep and get into deep sleep, you're, that alarm is going to probably go off before you want to get up anyway. But I don't put too much, too much, I don't stress out too much about like how much sleep I'm getting the night before outside of just trying to do the best I can given the situation. But just make sure like those two weeks before are very, very controlled in the sense that I'm giving myself plenty of opportunities to make sure I'm well rested, plenty of opportunities to make sure I'm kind of checking all the boxes nutritionally, working through kind of my race strategy, preparing the logistics so that I don't have anything that pops up that I should have been able to plan for that I that I didn't. And then the mental side of it is kind of more of a longer term approach. And that's just kind of practicing like where you're going to have your head or how you're going to respond to certain situations in training. So the hard part about ultra running is since it is at a low intensity, the mental component becomes a little more challenging, I think, in the, or maybe not more challenging, but just different where when I'm racing, like say a 5k, that is fast enough where the amount of actual like deep thinking I can do is limited because the noise in my head from the intensity I'm trying to produce is loud enough that there's not a whole lot of room to be like second and third guessing anything. You just kind of have to respond, respond, respond. And then if you screw up, you just go back and do it again and you keep doing it till you get it right. And since it's 5k, not hundred miles, you can do more of them with hundred miles. It's slow. You can think through things. You can question yourself. You can doubt yourself. You can let your head go into negative directions into positive directions. So what I try to do is I try to look for those scenarios that I know are going to happen on race day from past experience, recognize them in training and practice the proper response to those. So then when I get to the point where I'm racing and I hit that spot, my head goes towards the correct path because I've rehearsed it time and time again over the last four to six months preparing for the event versus getting to that spot during the race and spending like a lot of time stressing and figuring out what I should be thinking about or where I should be putting my head. And then ultimately like 
losing progress because I'm wasting time trying to solve a problem that I could have solved in training. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything that you do when you get to a point where you really need to dig deep? Is there any mental practices or any places you have to take your mind in order to get you through the final stages or something or to ask yourself a little bit more? Yeah. The way I like to look at it is I try to put it in perspective first, where if I decide today, if I'm, let's, let's say I just came off an off season and I'm ready to kind of start structured training again, I'm looking at 16 to 24 weeks, essentially, or four to six months to really kind of put in the right work to, to peak for that race. So when I look at just the number of hours of time and the amount of energy I'm spending just to get to the start line, it's massive compared to even the long race itself. So when I'm out there on the starting line, and I start the race and maybe I'm 40 miles in, 50 miles in, I'm starting to second guess whether I'm able to do this today. I just ask myself, like, okay, if, if you can't do this, that's fine, but you have to be okay with getting 99 to like 99 and a half percent of the way there and deciding you don't have that last half percent or that last 1% to finish the job. And that's a lot harder, I think, to accept. So when I can get myself into that mindset, it's a lot more, it's, it's a lot more predictable to determine whether is this something I need to actually stop for? And usually what it comes down to is like, is it a physical thing? Like, did I hurt myself in a way where like, if I don't stop the assault on whatever this injury is, I'm going to be paying for that decision months or years down the road. I think that's a very justifiable reason to say like, all right, it's worth bailing out on being 99 or 99 and a half percent of the way there. But if it's just like, Hey, I had a mental lapse, couldn't get over it. And then I stopped, you know, I don't want to be second guessing myself for weeks or months or years about if I would have just been a little more mentally strong on that day, I could have pushed through that. I mean, everyone's going to have those days, but you want to minimize them. And if you minimize them, then you're going to have just more opportunities to really find your true potential. And you sort of learn that throughout your racing career too, where you'll have a day where you're just really dialed mentally and you break through a mental block that would have been a problem for you in previous races. For one thing, you're excited about that. That's a breakthrough. But then you're also dealing with the whole aspect of like, well, I figured this out now, but what about those three or four times I didn't? Could I have done it then? And then what I would have had a better race then? You start, you can also go that direction. So I think it is something where at the end of the day, you have to look at it as something that's going to be a little messy. It's not going to be as perfect or perfect at all. And uh, you need to look at even those failures as stepping stones towards learning what is going to work best for you and developing those mental tricks and those those mental kind of like motivators or mantras in your head that are going to get you through those tough spots and really show you where the mental hurdles are versus like strict physical ones that you're just not going to be able to kind of push through. 100%. And I guess at this stage, you've been able to know that your mind isn't going to be biased in that sense in the sense that if it's physical it's physical i know there's a lot of times in which i'm sure maybe i don't know if it was earlier in your career or there's other athletes that you've heard of where they might almost manifest a physical issue but it's purely a mental issue have you found you've kind of got through that is that any ever a challenge you had to go through yeah, for sure. I think like, yeah, especially earlier in my career before I've had, before I just had the experience to really see it firsthand. I mean, people talk about it. I think all trainers in general maybe protect that a little bit because it's like, it's a sport where like the general public is going to view it as this big mental endeavor. It's going to be something you kind of hang your hat on to a degree where it's like, you know, I was able to like mentally process this hundred mile effort and things like that. So it's not easy for someone who considers themselves an ultra marathoner to say, 
hey, I was mentally weak today and you know that's why I didn't do well. So it's a lot easier to say like, oh, you know, this broke down on me or I did this, this you know, something that was insurmountable uh, was the reason. And sometimes it is, but I think a lot of times it is mental. And when you, like I said, when you do have those experiences where you come up to that point where you would have broke before and then you push through and you realize, oh, this was just something I needed to deal with for 10 or 15 more minutes and it would have passed. But my mind went to, if it's bad now, it's going to only get worse. It can't get better. And I have 30, 40 miles to go. And there's just no way I can deal with this discomfort or worse comfort than this discomfort than this for that long of a time. You start to kind of recognize where those spots were. If you give yourself enough opportunities to kind of break through those plateaus. And and if you're honest with yourself, I think you realize, yeah, there was some spots where, where I, uh, you know, had some excuses that were maybe, maybe not accurate. And then I'm no different than that. I've definitely had races like that in the past. And I think that's just part of the process though. And accepting it, admitting to it and, and learning from it is really the big step forward for most people. Absolutely. So I want to turn the interview on its head a little bit and direct this more in the sense of those who are listening and those who have their own specific endeavors. Of course, you have the athletic side of things. What allowed you and what um, inspired you to also coach people at the same time? You find that some people are strictly professional until they've retired and then they focus on the coaching side of things, but you've decided to do both at the same time. What was that decision down to? Yeah. uh, You know, I've always enjoyed it. I mean, part of it is you know, I went into teaching for a reason. So it's like, it's kind of filling that void to a degree. It's like, I don't necessarily feel like that was something that I just was, uh, you know, there for the sake of being there. And it was an important aspect. It it gives me an outlet away too. I think there are people who I think can just be very one dimensional and say, I'm going to live purely like a professional athlete where I have nothing in the day to worry about other than this training session, what I needed to recover from it, and then get out and do it again, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and then race, move on to the next thing. I'm not that inclined to go that way. I think like there's also people who, when they put themselves into that world, it looks great on paper, but it is not going to pan out in practice that way because it puts you in a position where every failure is built up to be much bigger than it really is because you have no outlet from it. It's there. It's waiting for you. It's like your next goal is to deal with that and that only. And I don't think it really gives you necessarily like the clear perspective that you have if you're also doing something else that you can sink time and energy into. So coaching is one of those things where I I just really like to help people solve the problems that I've encountered or unique ones to them that I haven't encountered. It's kind of like a fun. I look at it kind of the same ways if I like decided I had some free time and wanted to play like a game of chess or like a board game or something like that, where it's like, we have these, these people are all different. I mean, I coach mostly people who are professionals in a different area. They're not professional athletes. So they have families, they have jobs, they have stressors and things that pop up that uh, are unpredictable at times, or even if they are predictable, they are things you have to solve, problems you have to solve, you have to work around them, find the best path forward for their circumstance versus what maybe is the best path forward for me or somebody else. And that's a lot of fun for me. So uh, I don't see it as like something where it's like really difficult to want to do it, which I think helps because then I have something to do with the time that I wouldn't be training. You know, the, the interesting thing about running endurance is there's a lot more impact there than say like cycling or swimming or skiing. So there's a limited amount of volume you can do before your margin of diminishing returns tends to kind of come back and bite you. So like for me, uh, you know, I want to fill that time with something and coaching's part of it. Podcasting's part of it. And then it's really just coming down to like, 
being honest with yourself about the balance of like, well, how many coaching clients can I take on before it starts to really actually negatively impact my training and racing? Or how many podcasts can I record before uh, it starts bleeding into some of the other things that I'm excited about? So really the biggest hurdle for me with that is just finding that right balance. And, you know, fortunately I've been doing it long enough now where I feel like I kind of have a good routine where I know at certain points in my training, I'm going to need to be a little more available for that versus some of the other things and I can kind of plan ahead accordingly. And there's going to be other parts of the year where I can take on a larger number of things outside of the training and racing. And you start to get to the, see those patterns and they become a little more predictable. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a really good blend. It is, like you said, it's going to take this thing off of building up for a massive event, then that coming to an end and maybe having some downtime in between. If you know that on Monday, you go back to the coaching clients that you're working with and you go back to X, Y, or Z, whereas there's going to be this massive void to fill if it's just the racing that you're used to doing. And with that being said, you work with, like you said, not so many professional athletes per se. So are you working with many beginners, like those who are completely fresh to running? Yeah, for sure. You know, I have a lot of like first timers. Um, and actually it's been really interesting the last couple of years because there's just been kind of a little bit another growth spurt with ultra running. And I think some of that's just general growth and running over the pandemic when a lot of the gyms closed and people decided like, well, what can I do with, you know, want to be active. You also have this scenario where you get these, uh, you get these like big names, like, you know, David Goggins, for example, or Cameron Haynes who come from completely different worlds. Like, you know, Cam Haynes comes from a hunting world. So he, decides to get into ultra marathon running because it's going to help his endeavors out there when he's got to hike 20 miles into the backcountry to, you know, get the elk and drag it back out. That's like a huge advantage for him. And he's introducing that to a whole population of people who would maybe otherwise never even consider doing a race, a trail race or something like that. Yeah. And then you, you get like, uh, you get like the David Goggins type people who are kind of military backgrounds. So now you get these folks who, you know, they had a career where a lot of things that kind of really, I think, work well for endurance sport, like discipline, scheduling, productivity, problem solving, things that are problem solving, like quickly and decisively too. Like these are all really great skill sets that translate well into the sport of ultra running. And, you know, sometimes it's just introducing the person to sport. It's like I had been running relatively competitively in, in high school and college for years before I even knew an ultra marathon existed. So it's like, there's these communities out here who are even further removed from the sport of endurance that would translate really well to that lifestyle. And I think we're seeing more of them figure that out just because of the relative ease of access to people who are doing these things and, you know, online things. And, and then, and then big names like Goggins and Cam Haynes, and then, you know, guys like Joe Rogan who have huge platforms who are willing to talk about the sport enough where people who, who wouldn't have heard about it are all of a sudden getting curious about, well, what would happen if I decided to do one of those? And I see a lot of those people come into the sport now who are either have a background in strength, a completely different sport, or are new to running altogether, wanting to kind of take on a challenge. And, and then there's just the people who are, they're runners, but they decided, Hey, you know what? I've been doing five Ks, half marathons, marathons for a decade. And just like I get a little stale doing the, you know, 400 meter loop courses after a while. And I decided to go and do a trail race for a while. You know, they're like, Hey, maybe I'll just try this ultra marathon and see what it's like. And, uh, it's definitely a slippery slope sport where once you do one, you kind of get sucked in. And that happened to me when I did my first ultra marathon, it was a 50 miler in 2010. I was like 24. And I remember when I signed up for that race, I was like, well, I'm going to do this. And I probably won't do another one until I'm like 30. And I did it. And then the next year I was all in on ultra marathons at that same time. So it has a weird way of kind of sucking you in. Cause I think it puts you through this process of really learning stuff about yourself that would take years to do at a natural pace. But since you're throwing yourself into this like extreme event, you see these, these kind of, you're, you're faced 
to, you, you, you're forced to look at yourself from a different angle that sometimes takes a lot longer to kind of get to. And I think people really value that experience and want to uh, recreate it. Yeah. And what's that next step look like? I can feasibly understand what it's like to run a five, a 10, and even a half marathon and a full marathon. But that next step up to those ultra distances, what type of steps need to be taken? What are the big differences between that and your typical races and kind of lengths that people have learned to understand? Yeah. So I think like for first off, I think like there's nothing necessarily wrong with staying at those distances. I think there's like, there's sort of different ways to look at it. Like there's, I think a lot of value to be had in saying, Hey, I really like the 5k. So my next step is not to go up to 10k or half marathon, but it's to see how fast can I run 5k? I mean, I've sort of done that with the hundred mile distance to some degree. And, you know, so I, I still coach people who run those distances too. And I don't necessarily try to prod them along to become ultra runners. If they want to, they're excited about it. What I usually tell people is like, well, what is it really that you want to do? What's motivating you? What is your why? And then how do we get you to a point where the act of preparing for this is really where the value is versus checking some arbitrary like distance off the list and say, Hey, I did that. And then maybe never running again, or, you know, completely doing something different. So really finding out where their motivation is, I think is, is sort of key to doing it. But then once they, once they do find that, let's say they do that and they decide, well, the hundred mile is that thing, that thing that I really want to do the training for. I really want to experience. This is going to be something valuable to me. Even if I have a really bad race day, I'm still going to be just totally stoked on the fact that I went through that whole process then we're just looking at like, well, where is your current fitness, your historic, your historic training, and just identifying like where maybe the gaps are in the fitness we want you to have on race day. And then kind of like I said before, then we're going to work on weaknesses and least specific things early. So if it's someone who's a runner before, just not an ultra runner, they've already done these workouts most likely. So it's about just kind of letting them know like, well, we're not going to do these short intervals at the end of your training plan. So you can run a fast 5k because those short intervals are going to be very specific to the pace they're probably going to do for a 5k. We're going to move those earlier and we're going to kind of get that development done. And then we're going to kind of move on to something that is still would be considered speed work, but uh, slower than the short interval side of things. And then move into the real development. It's just an order of operations things from there. So I think there's just the general fitness is a big component to it. Like if you give me someone who is, done a very good job training for like marathons and half marathons. It's not hard at all to get them ready for an ultra marathon. It's just really kind of reorganizing the timing of when they do certain things and then deciding if there's certain levers we want to pull a little harder. So the one that probably stands out the most is long run development. I think sometimes ultra runners maybe lean into that one a little too much where they like, they identify the long run a little bit too much and they're like doing it year round in a, in a pretty high capacity I like to kind of minimize that a little bit, especially in the first third to sometimes even two thirds of the training plan before really leaning into like making that the primary focus of their development. But once it becomes the primary development focus, I mean, you might be spending like a good chunk, like 50% plus of your training volume on like two sessions that week, which just makes it look a lot more lopsided. A lot of runners are going to be a little more routine where they're doing a pretty standard kind of distance or time per day. And there might be a little bit of a variance on their long run and things like that, but not to that extreme. So just kind of getting them used to the, the little bit more polarizing aspect of that uh, is, is another kind of aspect to kind of teach. Yeah. And another big thing that you talk about is not only doing those long runs, it's doing the tempo work and the speed work as well. And something that I found pretty impractical, but something I would love to work around is being based in a city. The majority of the running I did was in the streets of London, where you're stopped by traffic lights, you're stopped by people and all these type of things. Do you have any recommendations for 
embedding speed and tempo work into your repertoire when you've only kind of got that street terrain to work with? Yeah. And there's, there's like, uh, the one part is like, there's like, where does the research indicate like optimal for these type of workouts? And then what's practical for the average person. And then there's also like, you can look at like a really well done research study and find out, well, if I want to really develop my VO2 max, ideally I'm going to be doing two to four minute sessions, uh, at about 95% of my max heart rate. And I'm going to be doing about one-to-one work to rest ratio And like, that's going to yield the biggest improvement. And it's like, it does, I'm sure. But how important is that going to be when you get to the starting line of a hundred mile race? Is that one to 2% difference when you're like creating a bunch of like stressors in your life in order to do it going to, going to outweigh that tiny little advantage that you may be created. And usually the answer is no, I think, I think like at that point, like we're working with someone who's got a specific set of things available to them. And then we're like, what are we going to do to best prepare you for? So for something like that, I would probably lean a little bit more into a less structured interval session where it's like, you kind of get to know like specific routes where, Hey, I've got like a couple minutes where I will have uninterrupted here. I'm probably going to get stopped at a stoplight. So I'm going to do my fast interval from here to where I'll hit that stoplight. And that stoplight is going to be where this interval ends, regardless of whether it's exactly two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, maybe it's two minutes and 32 seconds, or maybe it's three minutes and two seconds or something like that. But when you get there, you either stop and wait for traffic, or if you do happen to get lucky and cleared, you just do an easy jog and get into that one-to-one recovery ratio thing. So you can kind of like hack the system a little bit with that type of stuff by working with your train and what you have available to kind of match the workout you're doing. Where that gets a little more difficult is... um, something like where you're doing like something more steady state or something more like where you're supposed to kind of continuously be working at a specific intensity and minimizing the stopping points to really practice kind of that forward progress mentality on race day. So for those, they, for those type of situations, I mean, you can get super creative if you want, where you're like doing jumping jacks at the stopping line, if you don't mind looking super crazy or, (laughs) or, uh, you know, running in place or something like that too, is since that the intensity is low for a lot of that continuous less stopping type stuff. Uh, You can get away with a lot more variety, I think, in terms of moving your body. The mechanical aspect of running is important, but I think there's a huge mental component of just being comfortable moving for very long periods of time. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. You don't necessarily have to be you know, as specific with, uh, you know, kind of the running side of things as you maybe would for like an exact marathon time. Yeah. And what place does resistance training have in your client's repertoire when it comes to them essentially improving their running performance, protecting themselves from injury? How much of a bias do you place on that type of work? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. And really the question is like, what is the person's availability for and what do they have access to? So, you know, someone who's got access to like a full scale gym with all the equipment, that's one, one set of variables. And there's a person who's maybe I've got very little time. I've got some at home equipment. It's like some bands or some like light weights or something like that, that I can work with and figure out what do you do with those to kind of best put them in position. What I try to do with folks is we try to focus on doing some strength work I try to divide it into kind of three areas and two of them I kind of couple together because they're not going to be necessarily like really big negative impactors on kind of running performance. So I go like lower body is, is one of them upper body and core is going to be kind of the next. And I'll usually pair upper body and core together and then lower body uh, on itself. And then I'm looking at trying to get one stimulus for each of those per week as like kind of the minimum dosage. And if someone who really enjoys strength work has the time for it, wants to make like a much smaller, but still potentially beneficial step forward. They can do two of those sessions each per week. I have some that, especially I get some guys and gals who come from a strength background and they're just, they're doing an ultra marathon or a race just to kind of like you know, mix it up a little bit. And the, you know, those, those folks are 
Well, first of all, I usually don't have to direct them too much with strength work. It's more about like, well, which movements are going to be most beneficial for your running. And uh, then they, they they have the routine and they have the the knowledge of usually of like how to move around and work around a gym and things like that. So there's a little less handholding on that side of things. Uh, but things I like to focus on are like usually muscles that would be a potential imbalance or injury potential and kind of work with that. So it's like hip flexor strength, tibialis strength, ankle strength. Uh, stuff like that. And I mean, the, a lot of these things can be addressed through a lot of the more kind of fundamental movements, like, uh, you know, like, like the, the, the squat movement or the deadlift movement, those type of things aren't, aren't going to be terrible movements at all. You do have to be careful a lot of times about loading up a ton of weight with those, <laughs> especially if it's someone who doesn't have the background or the form, or even if they do, it's like, you know, you don't want to create an injury or have someone have a setback doing a, a supplementary activity, um, I mean, you don't want to have that at all, but it's, it's probably stings a little more if like you're doing this running program and it's going great running wise, you got the, the training load dialed in perfectly. And then you like jack your back doing a deadlift or something like that. So, you know, stuff like that, I think can be, can be very useful to kind of putting yourself in a position where you're working through some of these imbalances or some of these things for runners specifically, I find like a lot of times the issues stem from things like sitting in chairs where like your hip flexors are just going to be folded in the opposite direction that you really want to have them when you're in a running form position. So how do we have you go about your day where you're addressing that with either a strength workout or just like the way you're positioning your body throughout the day and, uh, and, and looking at those things as, as potential, uh, ways to kind of move forward in, in what they want to do. Yeah, we spoke about the nutritional component earlier as well and how important that is to be dialed in when it comes to your long races. With the clients you work with, do you also recommend them to do low carb? Because I know you've been very vocal about that and it's something that you implement regularly because it works very well for you. But I'm keen to see if you implement that into your client's journey or is it once again coming down to the practicalities of what's available to them and what they enjoy fundamentally? Even for ultra marathons where that door is much wider open because the intensity on race days lower, like you get like marathon, especially competitive marathoners or people who are trying to go all out for like a couple hours. It's such a, it's a hard sell at that point, because at that point you, it's just the process of breaking down fat and converting it into energy is going to be slower. There's just no way around that. Like you're not going to speed that up to the point where you're going to be, you're going to be able to metabolize fat quicker than you are like muscle glycogen. So you have to be honest with yourself about like, what are the goals? I mean, some people will still run faster for those type of times and distances on a low carb diet, because some other variable that was holding them back gets cleared up with a dietary shift for one reason or the other. Uh, so I do be mindful of that, but really what I end up doing with folks is I kind of go from a, if it's not broken, don't fix it mentality. So if someone comes to me and they're following a moderate carbohydrate diet, they can fuel easily like 50 to 70 or maybe even more grams of carbohydrate per hour during races with little to no digestive issue. Their energy levels are stable. Their recovery is great. Their sleep's great. I'm not going to be like pushing them to go low carb or anything like that. Then, then I'll get people who are come to me who are already low carb. And since I am vocal about that process being part of my strategy, I get a lot more people who are already in that world because they, you know, if they're looking for a coach and they see that, you know, I've been doing a low carbohydrate diet for nearly 11 years, they, they, I think they just assume I'm going to have more experience with it, both working with other people as well as myself and, and maybe knowing, knowing how to kind of navigate some of the pitfalls with it, or at least show them whether they're doing it right or wrong. And, and then it's usually what it comes down to with those folks is just kind of like making the lifestyle match their fueling. So a great example of this that happens fairly frequently is all of someone who kind of went into the low carb world 
and follow a pretty strict ketogenic diet, which is going to be usually like essentially anything from like a zero gram to like upwards to maybe 50 grams of carbohydrate today. So basically like the complete avoidance of carbohydrate for all intents and purposes. And they're doing that through like a relatively sedentary lifestyle or one that isn't maybe as high volume as what it's going to be when they start preparing for an endurance race. And it's just like talking them through like what they're doing with that lifestyle change, where you're essentially putting your metabolism on fast forward. You're asking your body to turn over muscle glycogen much quicker than you were before. So you can't rely on things like gluconeogenesis to provide you with the right amount of muscle glycogen to get through that long workout. That's got some intensity built into it, or a race that's 12, 16, 24 hours long or something like that. If you're going to be tapping into those, there's still some, it's still like undetermined really. Like when you start getting those really long distances, like, you know, 20, 24 hours and stuff like that, whether like someone on a strict ketogenic diet would need to be supplementing with a carbohydrate because the intensity can be quite low at that point. So there is a window when you get to really long where I would be a little more, a little less resistant in saying like, this is the path forward if someone says that's working well for them. But most of the time, it's like kind of getting them to look at their lifestyle and recognize that by adding this extra 10, 12 hours per week of endurance work or something like that is going to change the framework of what even like your, if you're looking at like your fat oxidation rates or your level of ketone bodies in your blood and things like that are going to be produced because that lifestyle component speeds everything up. And that just means usually a little bit of a different starting point. That's a little more, a little more accepting of more carbohydrates than what they would have had before, but still very much low compared to the higher numbers of like 60, 70, sometimes even 80% of their diet coming from carbohydrate when they're in the moderate to high kind of category. So putting that into perspective is usually like the best way forward. So I, I tend to try to be like a little bit more of like an information reserve in terms of like what questions you have about this, what is your reason for doing it? And then helping them work through that and ultimately finding out on race day, everyone's goal is to defend muscle glycogen. Where are you within that range of different numbers that people are going to need uh, or figuring that out as best we can and then determining whether any type of dietary shift is necessary or in your best interest or or not. So that's usually like fixes most of the problems or most of the questions. And every once in a while I'll have someone who's like, just really curious. They just like want to try it out. And they're, they're not solely invested in their race outcome from a specific time stamp, but like they're, they're they may only have a goal of finishing and they're very capable of doing that. And they also want to explore low carbohydrate nutrition. So for someone like that, it's like, well, yeah, let's, 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 let's do it. Let's walk through it. Let's see what your experience is like. We can take that experience and we can build from it. We can stick with it. We can adjust it. We can do whatever we want with it. Once you kind of have that experience, you know how you're going to respond to it. And those folks are fun to work with too. Yeah, I can totally relate with that. That was exactly what came to my mind at this moment. If I was to enter your realm in terms of looking towards performance in running, I would be curious to try that out too, because I don't have a particular affinity to like a moderate or high carbohydrate, which I would currently say I've based my lifestyle off. So I'd be very curious and intrigued to see where I would go with that. And if that was to be my outcome, what does low carb look like for you when it comes to the percentage of someone's total daily caloric intake? So the first thing I usually try to explain to people is a lot of times I think people come in thinking it's a little more black and white than it really is, where it's like, I have to ditch the carbs in order to improve fat oxidation rates, or I have to eat all the carbs in order to benefit from them. And really it's on a spectrum where like, if I take someone who's 70% carbohydrate and we bring them down to 40%, they're going to improve their fat oxidation rates, not as much as they would if they went down to 20, 10 or 5%. But the question then becomes, do you need to? 
Like, do you need to bring them that low? And if you do, are you creating a problem that wasn't there before that now is there, even though you have these like off the chart fat oxidation rates or these really high blood ketone levels and things like that? So usually that we first kind of make sure they're on that same page of like, this is a spectrum and we want to find where on that spectrum is going to work best for you. Uh, from the folks I've worked with and some of the people who are researching like low carbohydrate, uh, nutrition with endurance sport and things like that. Uh, usually what I do is I'm going to start them off at somewhere in the neighborhood of like hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate kind of once we enter structured training and, uh, we're going to watch their workout performance relative to what they've done in the past. And it's continued development throughout the course of their training. And we're going to make some adjustments along the way. That's very much kind of like a starting point or like a kind of a general, like general part of it. it, it it's, it's very much low enough to give them the experience of what it's like to kind of be in a low carb lifestyle. When you just look at those numbers, like you're looking at four to 600 calories per day coming from carbohydrate. If someone's doing an hour plus of work at a moderate intensity, you know, they're going to be in a position where they're going to be asking their body to burn quite a bit of fat at that, that level. Uh, so we can flex up or down from there. A lot of times it becomes more of, or less about flexing up or down from that number, but more about here we have a short interval session. Tomorrow we have a rest day. Do we want to borrow some of the rest day carbohydrate for the short interval session and then average out to those numbers over two or three days versus being kind of really set in stone with that exact number each and every day? That usually becomes more of the the discussion to be had with that. But yeah, it, you know, and I get I get people who like are kind of a little bit, you get a range of people. I, I would say like for most people who are following a low carbohydrate diet, they're going to usually be like below 30% of their intake from carbohydrate, even on their more carbohydrate aggressive days. Uh, and, and they're going to see improvements on fat oxidation rates with that because most people are going to be probably closer to 50, 60%, even if they're, if they're just kind of eating more intuitively and less like with a structured setup. So I don't usually toy around too much with like getting hung up on like ketone levels and things like that, because we don't, I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily any indication that that's going to be an improvement. Like it's not, I mean, it depends, I guess, like if someone's got like seizures or something like that, and then they're on a, they're on a therapeutic ketogenic diet for that, you know, that's a whole different conversation or context. But, um, generally speaking, I think like, you know, we're getting them into that framework where the majority of their macronutrients are coming from fat. They're kind of have a really relatively more fixed protein intake. That's going to stay a little more stable from one day to the next. And then where do we flex the carbohydrates based on kind of whether they're in short interval sessions, long interval sessions, long run development and things like that. And really the higher the intensity, the more we try to concentrate some of their like weekly or multi-day carbohydrate uh, allotment. And then rest days, easy days, lower intensity days, we tend to lean a little more uh, lower than they would on average. And, uh, and that's kind of like the general description, I guess. Yeah, super interesting stuff. And maybe something I'm going to have to pick your brains on a little bit in the future as well. And then when it comes to sleep and stress, that's probably one of the main components that you navigate with the day-to-day people you work with, given the fact they're not athletes, they're not looking for the ways in which to optimize those things. So how are you managing your client's sleep and stress to get the best out of their performance? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I mean, people are all over the place with that. It's a And some of it's controllable, some of it's not. It's like, you know, if someone decides, hey, I want to do an endurance event and I've got, you know, three kids, a wife, a job that I work 10 hours a week at, 
And the only way I'm going to be able to do any training is if I get up at 4 a.m. I mean, I was in that boat when I was teaching and trying to train for these races. I was waking up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and I probably wasn't sleeping quite as well as I am now where I have a lot more control of my schedule as to where I position certain things. So sometimes it's just about thinking like, well, let's get to the best place we can with those based on your schedule and then try to place the workouts where they're going to create less of a problem down the road. So if that means like there's two days during the week where you have less stress, let's make sure we are utilizing those days for the workouts that are going to be a little more demanding on you. And then if you have a day of work, that's just like super stressful, let's not throw a short interval session in on that day. Let's Let's maybe give you a rest day or a very lower volume, easy run day. If that's something that's going to be a little more conducive for that person's uh, schedule and things like that, or looking at different times a day to train and things like that. With sleep, it becomes also a conversation of workout placement because I find that working out earlier in the day does tend to be a little more productive for sleep quality or being able to get to sleep at night. So there is a question of like, if you get up an hour earlier to do this workout, Will that allow you to fall asleep an hour earlier versus letting you sleep in a little bit longer, but then you're kind of a little bit more wired at the end of the day and have a little bit more restless sleep because you can't get your heart rate to come down as quickly, or you were forced to eat a big meal late at night because you did your workout later in the day and that's keeping you up and things like that. So a lot of the times it's just kind of getting a good understanding of what the person's lifestyle is like, what their schedule is like and where the opportunities for training is, and then using what they have available to not negatively impact sleep, but still give them enough training stimulus to feel confident and able to complete whatever their goal is for, for the race itself. So, and sometimes that's just having an honest conversation too, where it's like, someone's like, well, I only have five hours a week to train and I want to do this hundred mile race. It's like, we could probably still get you to the finish line in a hundred mile race. It just depends on what your goal is and in what, what you want to get out of the whole experience and things like that. Yeah. I think ultimately it comes down to being super practical and then being honest and frank about what they can achieve with the time that they're able to give and the lifestyle that they ultimately have is a similar thing that I do with the clients I work with from a health and fitness standpoint. And, you know, they might want to achieve X, Y, or Z in this certain time frame or achieve this. And then you've just got ask the question, like, does this match up with your lifestyle at this moment in time? And also once you realize what's practical, usually for most people, it's sufficient. And then if you realize it's not, then it's a case of saying, okay, what, what things do we have to move here in order to actually get you to that goal? But I think at least starting with the practical elements, it's, yeah, it's usually sufficient for the most part as well. And on that note, I want to ask you a couple of final questions. And one of the big ones I have for you is what impact do you want to have on the clients and the people, yeah, the clients that you work with and the people who are inspired by the work that you do? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like there's a few things I really think are valuable. And one is first giving them an experience where they are able to be excited about, happy about, and learn from. Uh, I think the cherry on top is like nailing the race goal. I don't think that one is quite as valuable for their long-term development, although for some people it may be. Uh, and certainly from just like being a successful coach, you know, if I'm doing the right things, I'm going to have like a lot of people finding those spots. But ultimately I think like from, when I look at it from just like, where's the impact for me to them, it's probably going to be more just like kind of learning about where they can use the stuff they're learning from the training and apply it to other areas of their life as well. So I think like, even if someone is saying, Hey, I don't want to be running ultra marathons for 10 years or the rest of my life, but if I do one, it could positively impact the rest of my life because of the things I learned. Just like if I went to a semester of school and learned a bunch of things or skills that I don't have, and then I'm using those skills to help do other things in life that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, I think it's kind of that same thing where you learn to kind of have that structure, build that scaffolding out 
but then also looking inward to like the more uh, small goals too. Cause you, I mean, you have this big goal at the end that stands out that everyone's kind of focused on. Cause that's the one that kind of shows up in the results, but there's also a ton of potential like wins within that, where when we're practicing short intervals, you know, watching the improvements there, like giving them that experience of like, when I do this work, I get this result. When I do this, I get that result. And then we move on to a different intensity driver or goal. And then it's like, I do this workout, I get that result. And then they kind of learn like where these small wins are to kind of motivate them and add value to, uh, to that program. So it ends up being a, by the time they get to the starting line, they've had so many positive experiences and learning opportunities that even if they have a bad day out on the race, they're still going to be happy with the experience. And then if they nail the race, it's like, wow, that was incredible. I'm, you know, those are the people who tend to want to come back, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's incredible. It really, really is. And on that note, where can people find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing and the events you're signing yourself up for? Yeah. So I kind of try to put everything on my website for make it easy for people to find all the different stuff I'm up to. And that's just zachbitter.com, Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. There they can access uh, my kind of ready-made coaching plans that follow my philosophy as well as if they want to work with me one-on-one and have a little more uh, direct interaction. Also, I've got links to my podcast stuff there as well as social media channels. I'm most active on Instagram, which is just at Zach Bitter. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Zach. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Elliot. Thanks for having me on. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. To reach out to me on social media, you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.